So one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is what a bad bill of goods I was sold, especially in my impressionable teenage, like formative years of my life. Some of the ideas that were promoted on MTV, on mainstream culture, produced by adults for my age group is abysmal. I can't believe it. What was essentially sold to me is that the typical average adult life filled with responsibilities and duty and sacrifice was boring, unimportant, and a waste. And that people who went to a nine to five every day to provide for them and their loved ones and to have a safe and stable life, that was boring, that was unimportant. They were cogs in a machine. And there was this very romantic idea of the perpetual bachelor, the Bruce Wayne, the self-actualized man who, by the way, had no responsibilities, no duty, could experience a lot of freedom and do a lot of cool things and travel the world and take as many lovers as this character wanted, live the quote-unquote good life, some would call it. That that was somehow the better option. (laughs) Now, as I've gotten older and I've seen how many people get to live that life, statistically, how many people can economically break free in a way that allows them to live a life with very minimal responsibility or the ability to hire out their responsibilities. I realized that I wish I grew up in a world that promoted the joys of adulthood, the joys of responsibility and sacrifice. And yes, sometimes doing things that you don't want to do, but because it is the most practical, safe, and secure way to have a life that affords you the room and flexibility to find meaning, to find things that you're passionate about, to explore this rock that we're all on and share together, and to explore what it means to be a human being, I think a much more grown-up and intelligent strategy. And this just didn't come to me out of nowhere. It actually came to me of studying the people who are doing best in my life. They're contractors, union plumbers, nine-to-fivers, but people who have somehow figured out a way to make that dance part of their rich and fulfilling lives. They are not as close to the poverty line as I frequently am. There's no feast or famine. That was when we here at the studio decided, you know what, we're going to take on client work. And we're going to not only get to make this incredible program and get to express ourselves creatively and make art that we hope we get compensated for, as we get comfortable with this new setup and this new equipment, there is some cool kind of more artsy projects, but also the joy of having a service, offering a service to other people, doing work for other people, which might not be the work we necessarily want to do when we wake up that morning. That's all influenced by these incredible adults I have met that have really showed me not to be afraid of responsibility not to be afraid of getting older, not to be afraid of shouldering some burden and sacrificing some of your freedom, some of your autonomy and time, the most precious resource you have, just to ensure a very stable, safe, I'm excited to explore it in new episodes. So for today, we have an incredible photographer. He is actually very well known and recognized, but in our life, he is my producer and best friend's uncle, Marco Zakin. And we intentionally didn't bring him as one of the nation's premier architectural photographers, but we tried to bring him into this conversation as the wise uncle, as the, the wise elder you might find in your community, because they exist. And you don't need to go on Instagram to find them. And you should probably talk to more strangers. They will surprise you. So here's some incredible wisdom about being a creative, about being a working creative, about balancing creative works that your soul wants to produce and the professional works that are going to allow you to do that, as well as being a parent and other things that you might expect to hear from one of your village elders. Here is my conversation with Marco Zakin. Hey, Marco. 
Hi, Sam. So I'll just add this for the people watching or listening, which is I know very little about you except the myth of you. <laughs> this is a fun opportunity. You're the uncle of my best friend and producer, Reese. I've heard so many like life lessons and tales secondhand from you that it's, it's really fun to get to actually have a chance to meet you in person, get to learn a bit about you. It's a little different. I didn't get to read any books or do any of my sleuthing that I normally get to do, which is kind of an unfair way to start a conversation in some sense. We'll just go at it organically. We'll just go at it. So Marco, I like to start the podcast the same way every time. Who are you? I am a uh, California-born Italian-American. My parents were from Italy. Well, my father's from Italy. My mother's family was from Italy. So I'm full-blooded. And I identify quite heavily with the Italian culture. I'm also a father, daughter, who I adore. And she's 25 and off in Boston doing her thing. And I'm very proud of her. And I'm also a photographer and have been for close to 50 years now, or maybe more. But professionally for the last 37 years as an architectural interior design photographer. Prior to that, just here and there doing photography, uh, as starting when I was about 10 or 11 working as a photographer when I was in college at the University of California, Davis, as a lab tech at the medical school's photo department. So I, I've been around it all along, and my degree is in something altogether different. But what, What's your degree in? Nutrition science and dietetics. It's a oh. dual degree, very much on the science side, and uh, spent seven years after graduating specifically in that field, in sales specifically. What were, what were you selling? Infant formula. My specialty was... Infant and premature infant nutrition, when I was in school, it was pretty cutting edge at the time, still is, frankly. It was at the very nations of the NICUs, the neonatal intensive care units. It was cutting edge in that there was a lot of voodoo that was going on at the hospitals about how to feed a premature infant. When I graduated, or when I was about to graduate, there was a lot of research that was going on specifically to assay exactly what was in human breast milk for infants and trying to duplicate that and or improve on it. This very specific needs for the neonates, the premature infants, who human breast milk just wasn't enough to keep them alive. So again, trying to figure out what was needed, how to create that, how to augment human breast milk was cutting edge at the time. A lot of really interesting science that was developed around that. And the company that I ended up going to work for, Ross Laboratories, had developed a very early stage neonatal formulation that helped a lot of kids survive that were two pounds and some under. They brought me in because I had that background. Mainly that's what I focused my attentions to. Yeah. I know we sold a lot of Pedialyte and I love Pedialyte. <laughs> when I get sick, I look forward to yeah. getting my giant there jug you go. of it. That's it. It's just ritual at this point. I don't even, right. I don't know if it does any, a better job, but. It, well, my salesperson hat goes on. It, it does, actually. It, it tastes like it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what happened? Why'd you, how'd you end up changing careers? Well, I'd gotten married around that same time, a couple of years after I graduated from college. And we were living up in Reno doing a lot of, sales up there and enjoying it, but I had reclaimed my photography interests. I'd stepped away from it at the end of my college career to focus in on my business or the job I was in, and um, but reclaimed it after about three years and started taking photographs for, you know, doing the basic stuff, like doing weddings, and ended up having a contract with the AYSO for Northern Nevada. So we were photographing like 3,500 kids over three weekends. It was insane helped me buy new camera equipment. While I was working, it was just on the weekends that I was doing this. And then both my then wife and I got promotion offers in the same week. Mine was to go back to Columbus, Ohio, where the headquarters was, and hers was to come out to Monterey, California, or actually Salinas, California, specifically to the newspaper there. And um, it wasn't a tough decision coming back to California. So we did that, and I hung up my shingle in earnest at age 30. From that point forward, I identified myself as an architectural interior design photographer, specifically. Well, I would do other photographic assignments as well, but my emphasis was that, mainly because my dad, uh, Reese's grandparent, was an architect, 
And photographing for him, as I became more proficient at my photography, was always fascinating to me. And then met a number of other architects and interior designers and just built a business in that fashion. It's been ongoing, uninterrupted ever since, now 37 years. It's interesting that you switch into a passion of yours, but the first thing you do is set up something very commercially viable, which yes. I think is a trap a lot of people are falling into these days when they're going, hey, I, I really hate what I'm doing. I feel called towards this other thing. And what they think the ideal version of that looks like is like just making art all day. Right. A, if you, if you are doing art all day, it will become work. Lately, I've been very drawn to people who have consciously decided to take some of the pressure off their art by keeping some sort of very sustainable, very doable kind of income. So was that a choice or was that just like, hey, I need money, so I'll, I'll do buildings? No, people- I really, I, I honestly, I loved design. I love architecture. My father was an architect and I just loved going to the project sites with him and he would take us on the weekends after the construction folks were gone and he would take a look at what had been done during the previous week. And so I, that's how I was raised with his critique of the arch- of the con- contractor's works and what was done right, what wasn't done right. And so the stories of buildings started to form in my own head and just fell in love with it. And it was an education because he provided me with an insight onto the projects, even though I was fairly young, that you don't get unless you're actually the architect and working and seeing how it resolves particular issues, how they were resolved. Which, in fact, has been, I think, what I actually bring to the table that's unique in that regard is my being able to tell visually the story of a particular project or particular building, not only making it look beautiful, but also including, not feature them, but to provide them with a viewpoint of some of the more challenging design decisions or construction decisions that need to be made hundreds of thousands of times during a project that make it unique and honestly make the photographs more marketable for the architect who's my client or the contractor who's my client. One of the advantages of having been in sales before is knowing what's important in a sales presentation and how to illustrate that been my challenge from day one. Architecture has always been my passion. It must have been cool to get to hear your dad when you were growing up talk about the buildings it seems like an unfair advantage as a photographer i'm going to back up though sure and it's going to feel like a total tangent but i think that i can connect these two as we go on go for it as we go on when i asked you who you were one of the first things you said is i'm an italian american yes what does that mean to you i can tell that it's important to you so what does that mean well it's it's heritage uh it's culture i was raised in a household where the land was terra italiana We spoke Italian, we ate Italian food, we had Italian cars. My father wished for it to be little Italy of our own, um, separate from the community that we were in. Outside of the home, you know, we spoke English and all of that, but everybody in the community that we were were raised in knew that we were Italian, Italian speakers, and we'd wander through the town and there'd be other Italians there, and they would come up to us, ask my brother and I where we were going, and if we were walking by ourselves somewhere in town, in Italian, would ask us, does your mom and dad know where you're at and all of that? That was the first language that I learned. And so when we came back to the States, I had to learn how to speak English. I was born in San Diego, but that time was just at those years when you're just learning how to speak a language. It was problematic uh, because they weren't aware of some of the issues with bilingual teaching. I should have been taught how to read in Italian prior to trying to learn how to read in, in English. And it caused a number of issues for me to learn how to read for most of my life, frankly. But early on, you didn't read so good. I did not read so good, exactly. (laughs) It was a challenge for me. It set some thoughts in my head that were not necessarily positive about my capabilities. I'll never forget when I finally was reading, I was done with college, in fact, and working at that point. And a friend of mine had introduced me to a couple of authors that I was starting to read. I was really enjoying them. And I would start reading and I'd keep going and reading and reading and reading and reading. I was getting faster and faster and faster. And hear this little voice in the back of my head saying, but you don't know how to read. And I'm going, no, I don't know how to read. And I'm stopping myself in the middle of reading. And I don't realize that this voice is there. And then I go back to my little herky-jerky reading style. And then I catch myself flowing again and 
again, the voice would come back, but you don't know how to read. And finally, I recognized the voice. Don't remember exactly what, when, but I was probably in my late 20s. Heard that voice actually say that to me and saw, saw my response to it. Felt it, actually. It was more visceral. And I said, but I am reading. It took a lot of years, obviously. I mean, it was late 20s, almost 30 years, in order to recognize that the experience that I had trying to learn the language had, and those that were wanting to help me, my teachers, the special uh, teachers that were helping me to learn to read better, comprehend better, all there to help. But in a kid's mind, it went to, I'm broken, I'm not whole. I'm just not fully formed at this point. So that was a struggle for me, but you know, and then other things happened, but finally came out of that and reading was something I ended up enjoying doing. I'm fascinated with cultures within cultures. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why is I was just a white kid in the West Coast. There was no culture. I, I was never told this is who you are. This is where we come from. This is what we are. I was just thrown into the 90s, early 2000s American culture at large, which meant that I was like raised on MTV. And what I saw happening was just kind of what I could gather from the larger culture. Sure. As every parent has to do, you have to assess what went really well in my upbringing and what didn't go really well. I really believe just letting the culture at large raise your kids is not right, especially when the culture, in my opinion, is kind of sick, unclear, and really disjointed more than ever. And, and so that's one of the undertakings I take on as a parent is like, how do I at least give you the foundation to build on to say, hey, this is what we are. Right. And so I want to know about what you were told. Like, what were you told being an Italian American meant? Or what were you told being a Zakin meant? If you break somebody's identity down into a pyramid, it was like basically the first thing you mentioned. So I thought, oh, right. that's that's important. It, yes. And it, and it is, was, still is. I railed against it. I can't say that I was on board the whole time because I wanted to fit in as well. So my father was from Venice, identified with that town all his life. My father got his degree in art history. So there's a lot of art around the house. My mother was an artist as well. She was born and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut uh, and had a full scholarship to Boston University in art, but never took advantage of it and went to work instead but continued to be this fabulous artist in sculpture, painting, uh, knitting, crocheting, everything. I mean, it was just, the house was constantly immersed in some sort of art form. And we were encouraged to explore whatever we wanted. We had books. Uh, I remember we had a book on Michelangelo that was, I have it now, and it's dog-eared from the many years of my going through it as a kid, to the point where that became part of our cult enculturation was the art and the art being personal art, but also the history of art because my father loved Renaissance art of Italy, Italian Renaissance art, <laughs> kooky story, but one that really is kind of wild. And that is when we went back when I was 12, one of the things my dad did, he said, okay, we're going to, I'm going to teach you about some things in Florence. And when we visit it, we're going to go and see those things in reality. So the baptistry at the uh, Santa Maria del Fiore, the main cathedral in this heart of town, they have these bronze friezes on them that describe various scenes. So I recall standing in front of those doors and my father saying, what is that? What is the story at that frieze? What is the story at that frieze? And I would be there reciting whatever I had learned about those freezes. The crowd started gathering around. It was uncomfortable for me, but it was me engaging with my father at the time. The art was seminal to an understanding of being Italian for us, and architecture certainly. And my father had the post-war mid-century experience was his vision in life and in his artwork. So it was this very wonderful, minimal, straightforward style that was mimicked in Italian design at that time, or maybe exemplified, frankly, not just mimicked, exemplified. My father would build the furniture that we had in our house, and it would follow that theme very closely. We had Italian food. We would go to Santa Cruz every weekend to pick up fish for the meals for the, during the week. And where we went, all the people that were, the fishermen were all Italian, so we were always speaking Italian. 
So the food, even though my mom didn't know how to cook very well to begin with, she learned all of these things from her mother, who was from Italy. So we were raised on Italian food that was homemade and really delicious. We had fruit trees, first house specifically, which very much an Italian, at least the importation or the diaspora here in the United States, had brought with them the desire to maintain a bit of an agricultural entity or agricultural heart that they could go into the backyard and during the season pick up some apricots or the lemons that they needed, they were there. Any number of other fruits and vegetables that were grown, zucchini and squash blossoms during the season and really followed the seasons through our food that we ate. Not so much later on, but certainly early on, that was part of my upbringing. It was all referential to what happened in Italy, what we had in Italy. Yeah. And that's how that became such a strong connector. But then it's, it stopped. I mean, after, you know, at 13 years of age, I, I, I wanted to fit into the American culture. Well, let's compare notes real quick. Sure. Because in seventh grade, I meet my best friend until 11th grade, pretty much, Tony. He was an Italian-American, raised an Italian-American from Sicily, so a different part right. of Italy. Right. But uh, this is what I had in my head. When I think of, oh, what's the Italian-American difference? is I'll, I'll share some of my notes. You can tell me if there's yeah. some overlap sure. there. The first thing I noticed is they, they had four kids, which was different in Marin. Everybody had two or one. And I was a single child of a, a only parent. That stuck out to me. There was a big house, and the grandma lived a block away. This was already a very different setup than Marin County, which is like the typical kind of academic, intellectual, wasp culture, which was like, you pair up with somebody, you build this small little family, and then everybody's working, and the kids are whatever, just going to school. And that's really how it felt in Marin County growing up, is like, all the parents got home pretty late, they were all working, and the kids were kind of feral, which has its ups and, and it has its downs. But at Tony's house, there was always people there, and the house was like a meeting place, You'd go to the house. If Tony wasn't there, you could wait around, talk to this this one of the sisters, and there was always friends were always welcome to the house. So there's always noise, which was different for me. And I don't love noise, but it was like a hustle and bustle. Like the house was much more alive. There was a lot of cultural differences. So like Rocky, the eldest, stayed at the house until he was ready to get married and buy his own house. And he was a very successful contractor. But that was a very different way than like, let's say me who moved out when I was 17. The parents wanted the dates to basically come to the house. So if one of the daughters had a date, the guy would come to the house. If the son had a date, like they wanted to know intimately what was going on in their children's lives. The dad, Joe, he's very brash and very to the point. He would tell you exactly what he thought sharply. And it was like kind of a breath of fresh air, if, you know, if you're kind of getting handled with kid gloves. For somebody to go, that's stupid. You're you're being a knucklehead, right? <laughs> yeah. Does any of that feel familiar? Or yes, absolutely. We didn't have the large family. It was just two of us. My mother and her sister were the only two on her side of the family. My father had four siblings: two girls and two boys. They were all back in Italy. Yes, our house was loud, without a doubt. The friends that we made, or that, that my parents made, and that we had, we had people that were at the house every weekend, or we would be at somebody else's house every weekend. During the week was for work. In the evenings, we were chatting. The TV was always, always going. There, there, it was always noisy. So let's go forward a bit to when you become a parent. Yes. So as you, like I was just talking about, as you're assessing what do I want to do as a parent, like how do I want to raise my children, we can start with the Italian-American heritage as a standing off point, but then we can just go into the, the question at large. It took us a while. It took me a while to choose to have a child, partly because of my family's influence on me. When the decision was finally made, we moved forward. I spent the nine months prior to that looking at the fears that had been absorbed from my father and my mom. What, what kind of fears? Oh, a variety of them. Just uh, fears that made no sense, that were more cultural. When I went back to Italy, I ended up seeing how it was part of the culture. I spent the nine months looking at these fears that, that I had fear of foreigners, fear of giving somebody a little bit more leeway instead of trying to control them. And what I ended up doing was going through and saying, you know, I recognize that if I have a fear as an adult, 
and I have a child, that fear is going to be relayed, whether it's conscious or not, to my child. We all develop our own fears organically through experience in our lives. What I was hoping to do is minimize the influence that I had on my child of the fears that were not appropriate or were appropriated by me through my experience with my parents. So it was a conscious choice on my part to examine as many of those as they came up and try to come to terms with them and deal with them one fashion or another. Most of them I recognized had no value anymore. They were old fears that didn't work in American culture uh, in some cases. That was number one. It was a self-reflective place, recognizing that I had fears that had been absorbed by my family and that I didn't want to pass them on to my daughter. The second thing was I went to all my friends who had children and asked them specifically what their best advice was to me. I'll be honest with you, Sam. Most of it was garbage. Basically, the conclusion, that the answer that I got, you have no clue how to raise your child. I mean, it's just a random crapshoot. You, you just deal with it as you get going on it. But there was one person, a dear friend of mine, his wife, Diane Pace is her name. And Diane had a wonderful retort to that comment when I asked, you know, what is your best advice? And she simply said, very enigmatic in this way, just learn to let go a little bit more every day. And it was such a small concept and yet profound. I didn't know how to apply it, to be honest with you. I understood it because my father was rather clingy, if you will. I had the same experience that, that your buddy had in that they wanted the family around. I, my dad wanted me to go to college close by so I could come home, stay home at night, not have the college experience. But letting go every day a little bit more became a very important goal for me, for my child, as an upbringing, a way of teaching a child to become more independent and self-sufficient. So that's where I started. And a wonderful story that kind of emphasized that for me was, I, I recall that when Zoe was a child, an infant, and she was still toddling around, we had a um, the kitchen, I would clean the dishes, and I could hear her padding into the room. And she would come up and she would grab and hug my leg as she was padding through. And it was just one of these feeling of that was just amazing. I mean, just having your child and just this raw love coming through my up my leg, I just killed me every day. And I became aware that it just became a habit. I was enjoying every evening this would happen. And then one evening she padded through and I could hear her coming and I was waiting for the hug. And next thing I know, she's padding out the other side of the kitchen without having stopped. And I went, oh, that's what it means to let go a little bit more every day. Yeah, she would come by and still hug my leg, but it was in that moment that I realized, now this is the first example that I can truly hold on to that tells me that I need to let go. I, I, I can't ask for that affection because it's not gonna come that way. It has to come of its own. So that was probably the most important philosophical approach to a, a, a raising a child that I found most helpful. And in fact, later on, I actually told Zoe, I said, look, this is how I'm raising you. You're old enough at this point to become a part of that. And it's my responsibility to protect you, certainly, and to make your life, make it things safe for you. But also, if I'm letting go a little too much or need to let go more, I'd like you to feel comfortable enough to say so, which she did. She picked up on that. And it's been that, it started out that way. There were times when she'd say, Dad, I need you to be a bit more present. i go, okay, I'm here. Or I need a little bit more room. Okay, here. And we raised each other, if you will, as, as father and daughter. It all stemmed from that one statement that Diane provided me, provided us, that was my guide from that point forward and how to raise my child, but also how to treat other children and how to engage other children. How would you encapsulate like the philosophy? Like if Reese had a baby on the way and he started asking you, what, what would you tell him? I would simply say again, each day, learn to let go a little bit more. Finding that increment each day or recognizing the increment of each day is an important mirror to learn to do that for yourself as well. So it's not just for upbringing, it's not for just raising a child. It's how much can you let go how much you recognize that you have 
no control over, that you need to let go of, that you thought you had control over. I don't have control over my daughter. The more I try to control, like my father tried to do it, the more distance occurs. It's counterintuitive in some ways, but I think it makes more sense when you've experienced it, and that to see how a child grows and matures organically, observing that, as opposed to pushing something onto them. Now, mind you, you have to. You have, you have to keep them safe, so you have to set some certain rules, but without being so heavy-handed that you now stifle their own creativity, their own ability to recognize within themselves or have them make their own decisions starts at a very early age. And butting heads doesn't necessarily make for good decision-making processes. I mean, at this point, she makes these amazingly wonderful choices in her life that I am supremely proud for, of, for her. I don't see my hand in it, which makes me feel like a success. I don't need to see me in her. I don't need to see her choices matching mine. I can relate in some way. I view my role as to help prepare Jack's for life, mm -hmm. the trials and the triumphs. And yeah, there's a sense of protecting him from like just unfiltered reality, but also we'll go to the city and I'll point out like the things that are really tragic. Sure. And say like that is also happening because that's that is a huge part of life. Right. Like one of the things I'm struggling with is at what level do I want to understand the world? Because there's a million tragedies are happening in this moment that we're talking. Right. You have to decide like at, at what level do you want to engage with the world now that the world is accessible to you at all times? Yeah. I have found really helpful, which is we're really attracted to stimulation and just because it's stimulating doesn't mean it's good. Right. Just because it's convenient to watch a show or even listen to a song doesn't mean that's what you should be doing. My tolerance to stimulation can get so high so quickly that it will take being on my phone while a TV's in, on in the background and something else is going on to feel normal and to, to step back and to get back to being bored, get back to just being with yourself or being in the moment and being in this chair. I think is really helpful. I agree wholeheartedly that at the end of the day, you know, it's his hero's journey. I had him when I was 19 and there's going to be lots of challenges because of that. And I hope he finds a great therapist at some point. <laughs> I didn't get the luxury of thinking through it beforehand, getting consciously ready to have a kid. There just was a kid on the way. Right. It is the challenge of being a parent at whatever age. Yes. Mine started at age 41, 42. So I was further along than than you were. You come to the table with what you've got and you start recognizing what you have and what you don't have and you start working with it. That's all you can do. Uh, or you start acquiring knowledge from other sources or wisdom from other sources and hopefully you are able to assess how important that, that information is for you and for your family, for your child and make some choices that may work, may not work. If they don't work, have enough gumption to say, nope, it's not working, let's change, let's find something else. So small steps are the better ones rather than the big steps. At least that's what I've found. I mean, in life in general, there are times when you're presented with a, a gulf that you have to cross and to have the patience or the faithfulness to take that step that's much further along, much further away from you, a chasm that seems insurmountable and being able to say, I'm just going to step into it is not a daily activity. It may come up every now and again, but most of the steps are small and reflective. Um, the last time you came here, one of the aspects that I thought was fascinating about your skill set mm. that I thought you could share on the show is that you taught a class for artists on how to be professionals. Yes. And how to be a professional artist. Yeah. Which Marketing. is very different than being an artist. True. Marketing for Artists was the name of the program that we were teaching. It came out of my dear friend, J.D. Savelli, and I working on, well, I had come out with my first book, and he was a marketing guru in the Silicon Valley, and we were friends, and he asked me if I'd be interested in having him help me market my book, and I said, yeah, of course. And during the process, the six months that it took us to pull that all together, we recognized that there was a need, at least for artists, to find a way to help them find their way into the marketing of their artwork. And it became, for five years, our pleasure to, to do just that. What and should we know? And the most important thing, I think, is that the creativity that you use in your own artwork 
if you if you think that your creativity is only used for your own artwork you're selling yourself short at your ability to create anything for that matter so marketing is a creative force in its own right and applying just a small amount of the creativity that you maybe have found or, or that you utilize in getting in touch with a particular technique that you use to express yourself in your art can be used very effectively and with great success in your marketing yourself. In fact, it's probably the best way to find your own voice in the marketing of your own work. That being said, it comes down to what we discovered was three stories. One, the art story. What is the story around the art? How you made it? How you came to creating it? What were your influences? All of those coming to the realization of a particular piece of art. And what we suggested was as you're doing the art, you just write down thoughts that come up. Then there's your story as an artist. And if you think that you're an artist only because you started taking art classes, you're sadly mistaken. There's other influences that go way, way back to when you were a child or a family member who influenced you. And to recognize and absorb and honor that early nascent beginning of your interest in a particular art form, I think is an important part of the story. So that's your story, the artist's story. And then there is the sales story. Where is this being sold? Where are most of the galleries in the world? Where are on vacation spots around the world? People have the time to go and it becomes, a, look at the piece of artwork that I bought when I was in Hawaii or I was in Australia. It becomes an illustration of something that the patron now will utilize as a way of telling their story, providing them with the art story so they can start, you know, this is an acoustic painting that was done, da, 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 and they have that information by an artist by the name of such and such, and they their influences were this, 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 this. Adds to the patron's pleasure for themselves in learning about that, but also in their sharing that piece of art with their neighbors, their friends who come over for dinner, people who ask questions about the artwork. Those three stories are, are probably the strongest components to an art, a, a patron purchasing their artwork. The artist has control over two of those stories. The third one, sometimes the art story, the artist story is theirs to discover and create and provide to the patron. And they're deep and they're rich and the deeper and richer you go with it, the better off you are, at least for the patron. And if the patron is the one that is going to go out and speak about your, the artwork that they've just purchased, they've just now become a salesperson for you. They are going to take your artwork beyond your small neighborhood, show it around, and get more people interested in you. That's basically the components are very simple, but profoundly important in the sale of or in the patronage, patron's desire to purchase your artwork. Your willingness to engage as an artist is an important component as well. Some people just don't wish to do that. And I understand that. And it's a personal choice. Those that do choose to engage find much more success. They're able to engage with their patrons and they become friends with them. We used to give an example of you're going to a bar as a single person. You dress up, you make yourself look nice, you go out there and you get hit on or you hit on somebody. Beyond that, you have to engage. You have to start talking and share who you are. Some people can do it very nicely and very comfortably because they're comfortable with themselves. And you meet extraordinary people that you meet that way. But if you choose not to engage, it becomes a very superficial situation. It's all about how you look, and how who, not who you are, but how you are. So an artist's engagement with their patronage, either just on paper by t being able to tell their story or have their story told is an important component because we all want relationship. We all want to have that type of intimate relationship with anybody that we bring into our circle of, of life, including the artists. In our process of putting together my marketing plan for the book, I ended up learning about this concept and we discovered it, if you will, and took it outside of the marketing jargon and put it into terms that we hope artists would understand a bit better and embrace a bit more. Marco, if people want to be able to find you online, where would they find more of your work? Well, my website is marcozacane.com. 
that's where you'd find me there. And my Instagram account is mzakeen. Between those two, that's best to get a hold of me or see my work as I create it. What is the importance of mentorship, or at least the role of mentorship played in your life? Morley, um, Morley Bear certainly was the most important mentor I ever had. But if I can go back just a little bit further, when I was uh, 11, we went back to Connecticut, and my mom had a photographer who was a friend of hers, who was a commercial photographer back in Connecticut. We had met him a number of times. Robin Perry was his name, and went to the studio, and the experience there was shocking. It was delightful. Robin took us into the dark room and took a print and brought it up in the soup. It was just magic. And he was a wonderful gentleman to show us that. And the experience started my serious journey into photography at that point, because my father was a photographer of the family. So that started my experience in photography and wanting to go into the dark room and then getting a camera, realizing that my weekly allowance couldn't pay for all the processing I needed to do. I wanted to get a dark room, which I did after going to the local park. And I would take photographs of kids at the park Mind you, I was 13 at the time doing it today. It's less creepy than it sounds. That's yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and But I would go to the parents and ask if they would want to buy some photographs. And a lot of people did. And I paid for my darkroom in that fashion. When I went to high school, my photo teacher at high school allowed me to take the courses earlier than normal because I had been doing it for such a long time. He introduced me to the artwork of Ansel Adams. And then I went to see Ansel speak only once in my life. And that was an extraordinary influence on me. He was speaking at the at West Valley College in Campbell, California. He had just come out with his second book called The Print. And it was a difficult book, very technical. Didn't understand it, read it, but didn't understand it. So I went to this, this talk and the place was full. But I remember very clearly him showing his photographs. And But at the Q&A, they had a align photographers or would-be photographers there asking questions. They were all technical. So I was yawning a bit, I have to admit. And then I recognized in him, in Ansel, that he was getting a little frustrated with all these questions. He stopped after, or the question he asked, stopping the next person from asking his, was, does anybody want to know why I take photographs? Not how, but why I take photographs. And the place went dead silent. Uh, yeah. 500, 600 people, not a, not a sound. And he let that hang in the air. Did you ask why? I didn't. Oh. I wasn't, I felt very intimidated. I was, you know, everybody there was white beard, looked like me, but I was 13 at the time. <laughs> so I did not get up and ask questions. I didn't have any cogent questions that I felt. But the experience was that the next person that actually asked a question did not ask that question, asked another how question. And I could see Ansel's shoulders kind of drop, but he was courteous enough to answer the question and went on the evening without that question being asked or answered. But it remained in my head. Sometimes there are these mentors that come into your life that are single visit, maybe two visits, yeah. that you recognize as being important to your development. Uh, and, and then just a simple phrase. And, and Ansel passed away the year before I moved into the Monterey Bay area, which saddened me uh, because I did wish to meet him again and maybe even get, have the opportunity to, to mention that that evening. But instead, I ended up meeting a gentleman or was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Morley Bear, who was an architectural photographer as well as a fine art photographer out of Carmel. I hung my shingle up as an architectural photographer, but this this was the real thing. He was the man working at it from the early 60s, or 50s, late 50s, early 60s, all the way through. It was in his last 10 years that I met him. For five years, I worked as his assistant, and then five years, he was my mentor the whole time, but in the last five years of his life, he was a very strong and significant influence in my life. Some of the things, though, that talking about how to raise a child, letting go, came back to me through some of the things that we experienced together or that he taught me as we were working on projects. One in particular, I thought, remains in my head as being an important example of this. And that was, we were photographing this one building where we requested and it was provided to us that the parking lot was completely empty. 
so that we could take the photograph of that building with no cars in it. We arrived and lo and behold, there wasn't a car in that parking lot. Quickly, I helped him pull out his equipment. He was photographing an eight by 10 camera. It took a while to set that thing up. It was a beast. He was setting it up and this UPS driver comes and pulls right in front. And I went, okay, I'll go take care of that. And he sat there and he says, stop, not yet. And I went, okay, why? He says, look, I haven't gotten myself all set up here yet. Let it go. If when I'm ready, he's still there, then you can go. Okay. So I sat and waited. I was patient. I was bouncing from foot to foot, wanting to be useful to him, but he was setting up the camera. Got to the front, set the aperture, set the shutter speed, put the film in, pulled the dark slide, covered the camera, did all the work that he had to do. And at the moment that he was ready to take the photograph, the UPS guy comes out, jumps in the truck and drives away. And he just flip, takes the photograph and flips the plate backwards, puts another piece of film in, takes a second photograph. It's a wrap for that particular photograph. And he goes, he looks at me and he goes, it always happens. It just clears out. That was a huge lesson for me. Reese does that to me all the time. Does he? Yeah. If that we're about to record and a neighbor is blasting music or something, I'm like, oh, we got to go talk. And he's like, ah, when I press record, it's still a problem. Then we'll go deal with it. So he learned that from you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hugely important component that I started with the photography and recognizing, but that I do for my life now. It's a life lesson. It's not just a photographic lesson. If you engage in something, that which you have control over, you need to focus on. Everything else that you have no control over are outside influences. If they are still a problem, after you've done everything you can for yourself to do what you need to do, then and only then do you impose or look to impose your will on it. It never fails to work. And I've used it as a feedback loop for me. I set where I'm supposed to focus. I set the exposure. I level the camera. I step back, I look at the scene to see if everything's in place. If it's not, I put it all in place and then I take the photograph. So that's my checklist. But the feedback, if something in front of the camera isn't working, I use it as an indicator. Okay, you may have forgotten something from your checklist. You may have gotten distracted or whatever. Go back and just go through your checklist. And lo and behold, 80% of the time, I forgot this. I didn't level the camera. Or I didn't do that. Fix it up. And next thing I know, whatever's been, been bugging me in front of the camera is gone. I take the photograph and I move on to the next view. If you will, the universe is feeding information for me to be successful. I, I don't look at life as being challenging in that sense. It's there to try and help you be successful or be good at what you do. It can't tell you, go back and check your checklist. It only has a certain way of speaking to you coming back. For me, that's how I've interpreted that experience to return to my checklist, the things that I have control over in order to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. And it started out as only photography and now it's become more life lesson. It's beautiful. And it's simple. Yeah. I also, I always have an envy of the people who are good at looking for signs and it might sound woo woo to some people out there, but even if we remove any metaphysics out of it, I still think from a utility standpoint, it is such a powerful tool to be going through life, to be looking for signs and symbolism for whatever you're looking for. I think it's a big change. And, you know, I'm somebody who was a diehard atheist who became pretty spiritual just because I got jealous of how well my spiritual friends were doing. Don't know what I pray to. It's very similar to the check your checklist, which is, you know, the, the art of prayer for me is to acknowledge it's out of my control. Right. That's when it goes to prayer, right? Yes. Is when I've noticed something, hey, this is actually not in your sphere of influence because I really do believe in figuring out like, yeah, what's your part in these things? What do you have control over? And really applying yourself in those areas, which is not easy. But if something is truly out of your control, that's, you got to give it up. Right. That's right. That fits in with raising your child in the way how I raised Zoe for me. And that is you, you have to let go of this. You, yeah. you have no control over their growth. They, they have experiences beyond you. You've got to let that go. You have no control over it. If you try and control any of it, you're going to get slapped back pretty quick. At least I have. 
One of the things Morley taught me about the letting go until you've completed all the things that you are responsible for, uh, and then you'll see it come through in what's going on in front of the camera. You will see it resolve. And if not, you can add to it and make it happen. Expand on that a bit. What do you mean? Completing the things you're responsible for. It, it doesn't really affect me here. It doesn't really work here. So what am I going to do? Am I going to carry this? No, let go of it. Maybe you start concentrating your checklist to a handful of things that you really do have control over. And then as life goes on, you approach things with a, a lot more alacrity, I think. Uh, a lot more. What are the other life lessons that bled over from the art of photography? Well, composition. I'd like to think that that had comp composing is something that has come naturally to me. Um, or at least it feels like it has. When I've looked at it, I realized that as my father would take us around to look at different art pieces of art, I would see what that art was. And all these paintings, all of this artwork that I saw throughout my life is lodged somewhere in my head. Whether it's conscious or not, it's there and it's influencing how I approach things or how I see things. And how to frame or how to compose even a thought becomes an interesting challenge from that vantage point as well. Uh, where does the wisdom come from that now tells you that you need to let go of something or hold on to something or approach this in this fashion? It's just an additive process that comes out of the soup of one's life. I'll give you an example, a, a different example. I don't know where I read it, whether it was the Dalai Lama's statements or something of that nature, but it was, a, it was about training as a Buddhist monk where they would give them a begging bowl and to eat, they would have to go out and beg for food. That was the initial part. You'd have to eat what was in that bowl in order to get more. For me, that translated, if that bowl is what life gives you every day, how do you empty the bowl every day so that you're ready for the next meal or the next blessing or the next opportunity? That had become a challenge for me. Photographically, I recognized if I want to be successful as a photographer, I have to get an assignment that fills that bowl. What do I do to empty that bowl is I have to process the photographs. I have to invoice it. I have to deliver it to my client and make sure that they're happy with the image. That's how I empty photographically, how I empty that bowl. And then I started paying attention because you empty the bowl and it fills up again. It has an opportunity to fill up again. And I started looking at how long it took for that next assignment to come. Being conscious that the bowl was now empty in my mind, through that process, it's now empty. The next assignment, when I started doing this, it would take 48, 72 hours, and it would be full again. And I would have a full bowl that I would now have to consume, produce, and deliver. I have a very similar thought about inspiration and where it comes from. I haven't, as an adult, fact-checked this. Mm. But as a kid, I was told that you saw various inventions pop up in different areas of the world, kind of the same time period, by people who really had no contact with each other. Right. And it got me thinking about inspiration. I've always conceptualized it as it doesn't come from you. It comes from the muse or whatever you want to call the creative force of the universe. And the best way to get good inspiration is to be a good employee of it. And it's yeah. like, if you want the good assignments, do the ones that come to you. So I've always felt like when I'm really in a flow, it's because when I get that little hit of inspiration, I jump on it. Right. And then, of course, when I have been pretty stagnant or haven't really been listening to those little tinges of inspiration, then you're just in a slump. And it's kind of like, all right, I want a good assignment. Well, what was the last one? Right. You were assigned. Let's get that done. But right. it's similar to the, the bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the interesting thing was for me, as I paid attention to it, I started seeing, so 72 hours to the next one. Next time around, it's 48 hours. Next time around, 24. Next time, it was eight. These things, once you become aware of it, the span between your meals becomes closer and closer. Yeah. To the point where, if you don't mind like going at it this way, the universe knows that I'm paying attention to it as well, that I am in conversation with it. We are in conversation. I am now, my bowl is now empty and I'm just looking at the bowl to see when it gets filled again. And I enjoy the quickening of time that the universe now provides me with another full bowl. 
the universe is there to aid in your success. It is not a, a bedeviling force. It's a, it's a complementing force. It, it wants you to be successful. And the more aware you are of its complicity with you, the more it will provide you with these advantages. So at one point in 2013, I turned to the universe and I actually sat there and I said, can I have a bigger bowl? Lo and behold, it took about six months. It provided me with a larger bowl in the form of a huge client that has changed my life and made my success much more apparent to me on a financial side, but also on a wonderful experiment of engaging with the universe. I now have this much larger bowl that now three or four projects can reside in it all at the same time. Sometimes it's a little tough to empty it out for the next one, but no longer do I have to wait maybe three, four hours, maybe half a day for a new project to come to me. I now have four or five projects going on at all times. Architectural photography is interesting because you're A, working for a client, right? So there's a little bit of like honor the master and you are trying to get the best possible. When you work on a project, what's your, what's the philosophy you're bringing to it? When you feel, let's say nervous, like you go, you look at the spot, hmm, okay, this one's going to be challenging. What is that philosophy that you remind yourself of? Hey, this is what I'm here to do. And even though I don't have a good angle or even though, right. you know, this is where I stay grounded. Well, it, it starts from a place that Morley provided me. And that is you have to find the beauty and the love for the subject that you're photographing. His was a very interesting example. He was asked to take a photograph. He was working for House Beautiful at the time many years ago, and he ended up being one of the foremost photographers for them. So he would be bringing projects to House Beautiful to feature in the magazine. He went to this house where somebody had contacted him and asked him to come in and take a look. And he said, no, I don't think that House Beautiful would like it. It's not their cup of tea. Four months later, he sees that house in the magazine taken by another photographer. It humbled him, but in the sense that he became much more philosophical, he sat there and he says, that's the issue. Whatever it is, you've got to love it. You've got to find the lovable part of it. Through my dad, it was, there were some very straightforward buildings that were being built. You've got to find that energy towards that structure, towards that facade, towards that interior. Even if it comes down just simply that somebody spent time, made some choices in the design of that building, just in the simple recognition that someone has toiled to make this happen. And in honor of that, you need to bring your A-game, if you will. You need to bring your affection to that project, or at least see it in that way. So that's where I start. If I see a project that doesn't initially, and right off the bat, make me bounce up and down in my shoes out of excitement because I'm seeing something really unique or really interesting or really beautiful, I have to discover that. It's going to be a challenge for me to discover that. And I take on that challenge in earnest at that point. And it's from that place that everything else falls into place around that. If you love it, that's going to be conveyed to your client. Your client's going to see that you love what you're doing here with your project. They recognize that I'm there to help them. Going back to my dad, I recognize there were projects that were compromised because you know the contractor didn't necessarily do it the way he wanted it. Among architects, there's quite a few who are dissatisfied with their work by the end of the project. When the project is finally turned over to the client, they're so sick and tired and so demoralized by the process that they don't see the beauty of their own work, their own creation. Even though, yes, it's been changed, they still can't see that beauty. But for me, I ended up showing my dad the beauty of the work that he had done. And he actually told me this couple of times says, I forgot how much, you know, the design here is really nice. It really works still. But the process knocks people down sometimes and they lose sight of the, of what they're, what they are bringing to the whole project um, because they were caught up in the minutia. They're caught up in the decision-making process and not being able to release some of that. So I recognize that that's part of my job as well is to show the work in its best light and to do that, you've got to love it. Yeah. You've just got to love it. Um, or love something about it. Or uh, Right. You don't have to love it in entirety, right? No. <laughs> okay. No. Whatever type of building. I'm 
still excited with the possibilities. And as I've gotten more experienced at it, I feel a sense of, ex- of nervousness, of nervous excitement as I approach a project. When I first go and visit it, when I first go and see it, I recognize that sometimes I start holding my breath as opposed to breathing. I recognize the anxiety of that. I need to produce again another project. Uh, I need to do my very best, and that gets a little anxious. And at that point, the prayer comes, let me let it go, please. Let me just experience this for what it is and in the moment. And so it brings me back to the moment, stepping into that space, looking around, not letting anything else influence me other than what I see in that moment. That directs me more than anything else. It puts me into a frame of mind, well, being very present. It's a meditation with each individual photograph, each choice that I've made as how I'm going to compose something. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I like to end the same way, but I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on it this time. Okay. Reese and I have been using the studio to help people tell their stories. We've been videoing them and recording them, kind of basically doing what I do here, like a podcast episode with total strangers and then editing ourselves out. So they're just basically telling their own story. While I was making an ad for this service, somebody who I was talking to and kind of saying like, yeah, what do you think? Like, what am I missing or what do I need? He goes, oh, well, how much do you know about your great grandparents? Right. I thought not much. Like, I guess I know their names and what they did. Right. That's about it. He's like, there you go. That's what we're, that's what you're selling is a chance for your great grandkids to get to know you in depth so normally i ask uh if i handed you a phone and you were on the other line let's try something else where if i hand you a phone right now and on the other end of the line is some relative that you haven't met yet and you have a brief moment to tell them this is who i am this is what i figured out this is what i want you to know about life what would you say boy going forward breathe be conscious of one's breath and recognize that as I learned from my daughter's birth and my mother's passing, that as a birth, you take a breath in. So it's an acceptance of one's life and all of its richness. The exhale is an acceptance of one's passing. Mother held her in my arms. I heard her breath exit past my ear. It's the acceptance and the release of your life ultimately But that which you have no control over, it allows you to take the next breath in so that you can bring in the blessings and the exhale is to release whatever holds you back from accepting them and achieving what it is that you want to achieve. I'm not one to provide that to you. You're going to have to figure that out yourself. But the breath is going to give you that opportunity to discover that for yourself and engage in it in a way that is now going to keep you alive move forward. Thank you, Marco. You're very welcome, Sam. Thank you. Hello, humans. Thank you for listening to the How to Human podcast. Thank you for your feedback and your reviews on iTunes. Please get in touch with us if you enjoyed the show. We're reachable. You can go to our website, hellohumans.co, and get in contact with us. We're growing. We're learning how to produce the best possible hour-ish segment that reminds you that being human is such a gift and it's a mess. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's terrible. And the light of consciousness of being a human is a whole experience worth experiencing in itself, good and bad. So please don't be a stranger. If you'd like to get really intimate with us, join our Patreon for any amount. You're part of the community, whether it's a dollar or 50 or 200 a month. You get access to everything. We try to post the videos of these episodes on the Patreon, which if you're like me, that visual information might be important and interesting to you. And we also have regular gatherings. We do a book club for now. We plan on doing more types of gatherings in the future, but we do a really sweet book club. We read a book together. It's a great little ragtag group of people who come together to be together in the human experience It's a really beautiful little community. You can also follow us on Instagram if you like getting little snippets of these conversations or things that we're working on. And you can write us a review on iTunes, which lasts forever and is really fun for me to wake up to on Mondays and read the new reviews of the podcast. So if you enjoyed the show, 
It'd mean a lot to me if you took the time to review it. I know it's kind of a pain in the butt. How to humans on iTunes or the podcast app, please. I would love your review. If you enjoy this and would like to take an active role in producing new episodes and also influencing new episodes by gathering with me in the book club and helping me sort out some of the ideas that I'm having and our other members of the book club are having, please become a patron www.patreon.com slash howtohuman. This was recorded at Square One Studio in San Anselmo, California. For more information, you can go to square, the number one, dot studio. That's a website. You're just going to have to trust me. Or you can check it out. Come say hi. And I hope to see you there. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And until next time, be well.